Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Racing News 365.com Formula One podcast. We are a day after the chaos that was the Australian Grand Prix and it is my job to try and make sense of it all. To help me do that, I have, as always, Asian correspondent Michael Butterworth and editorial director Dieter Renkin. Dieter, hello to you and have you, in all of your years of watching this fabulous sport, seen a race like that? Well, Belv, you know, what I, what I must add here is I've been watching Formula One for about close on 60 years. So, you know, obviously there have been chaotic races in that time. I mean, I look think back immediately on Mugello 2020. That was pretty chaotic. I think back on the 2021 uh, sorry, uh, Saudi Arabian Grand Prix. That was pretty chaotic. So, yes, we've had chaos all over the place. And this, frankly, is far, far better than a sort of orderly procession, a sort of um, uh, lights to flag victory with number two finishing 10 metres behind the number number three, 10 metres behind that and whatever else. I'd far rather have the unpredictability. However, let's not get too carried away. It shouldn't be overdone. And I do believe that yesterday the show took precedent over the sport. And that's why we had so many red flags. Yeah, we'll get into that a little bit later on. But uh, Michael, hello to you as well. You had the pleasure of watching the Australian Grand Prix at a quote unquote normal time where you are. It was nice to uh, to watch it at 1pm over here. Of course, uh, I, I, I suppose for you guys based in Europe, it gives you a flavour of what it must be for, like for the uh, for the Australian and American fans who have to tune in every week at uh, all sorts of hours of the morning. Uh, so the shoe's on the other foot this time. But uh, of course, we've got this again later on in the year when uh, we've got the Las Vegas Grand Prix, which I believe, because that'll be a 10pm start on the west coast of America, I believe that is exactly the same time uh, everywhere else in the world. So uh, yeah, we've got a lot of readers uh, on Racing News 365 from Australia and from America, uh, from North America. And uh, yeah, it's nice to be able to, uh, to have a race in a time zone that suits them. Absolutely. Uh, Michael, you, you're 100% correct with that. Um, it's one of these sort of almost Eurocentric uh, obsessions that Formula One has had, which is starting at two or three o'clock everywhere. And because it was predominantly a European sport, however, as it sort of spread across the world, um, I think that it's it's only fair that, that the European audiences at times also get subjected to either early starts or very late starts and whatever else. Yeah, absolutely. I, I thought I'd need at least seven cups of coffee to keep me awake but the fighting on track did that for me michael dieter and i will do our very best to unpack everything that happened at albert park so let's get down to business michael all i'm going to say is three words lap one drama lap one drama well lap nine drama lap 54 drama lap 56 drama yeah there was drama all over the place and i'm going to try and keep this as quick as i can and that's going to be rather a challenge because there was so much going on uh, we had that early safety car with uh, charles leclerc having beached himself in the gravel or having been nerfed off on lap one rather uh, then lap eight we had another safety car alex Albon crashed and uh, they couldn't remove that um, without the safety car intervention. They upgraded that after one lap to a red flag. And uh, I think we're going to discuss a little bit later on whether or not that was uh, that was the right decision. There was some uh, interesting decisions that were taken, like Dieter alluded to earlier. Um, and uh, several of the drivers had some interesting things to say as well about what was sort of alluding to or just saying directly, in fact, that they thought maybe it was... Uh, 
some very strange decisions that uh, that changed the that, that changed the course of the race. But uh, once we did get going again, Max Verstappen uh, ended up in his sort of customary position, looking very comfortable out front until lap fifty four, when Kevin Magnussen hit the wall, lost the wheel, and then we had another red flag. And of course, that meant another standing start that completely negated the lead that Verstappen had had up to that point, and that led to uh, the chaos that we saw uh, over the last few laps of the race. Yes, Michael, you mentioned the red flags there. Dieter, let's go with you with the first one. Well, yeah, I mean, that was Alex Albon. You know, he, he thumped the barrier pretty hard. There was some kitty litter all over the circuit. Uh, was it necessary to have a red flag? Let's just consider how many tools the race director has in his toolbox. He's got yellows. He's got waved yellows. He's got um, a safety car. He's got a virtual safety car. Then he has a red flag. And it almost appears as though somebody said, the default option will always be red flag and we can try and sell it on the basis of safety. Yes, of course, I'm totally aware of safety. I've spoken to the safety director at the FIA. I was there three weeks ago. I respect enormously the amount of work that's being done on safety, but let's not turn everything into a safety issue. Um, I do believe that with a safety car, they could in fact have, uh, have cleared the track without the red flag and uh, you know this I think is really what what the race director needs to do is instead of immediately when I say immediately in this case admittedly there was a safety car then there was a red flag however I think that they could have taken a bit more time considered it a bit more and maybe cleared the stuff up without the red flag because the red flag the minute you have an interruption you have an interruption to the competitive order you know the strategies the tactics the everything and it just completely completely damages the race I know that later on in the segment we're going to be discussing the um uh, the fact or the question of whether one should do work under a red flag. And this, I think, is the major issue with red flags, that it completely changes the face of the race. Um, again, Dieter, we're talking about or we're discussing whether or not this was a too cautious a decision, just as we did last week and just as we did last year at Monaco and when, when uh, we had that safety car start in the rain. And uh, obviously, with the red flag coming out, then that allows free tyre choice and it completely uh, it, it completely disadvantaged uh, George Russell and Carlos Sainz, who, had the red flag not been flown, would have been in, in a really, really good position, having changed onto those uh, new tyres under the safety car conditions. And then and obviously with free tyre choice under the red flag, uh, they would drop well down into the order. George Russell, sadly for him, it was a bit of a moot point because he ended up retiring with a mechanical failure anyway. But uh, he, well, as you might expect, voiced his uh, opinion after the race. He said he didn't agree with it. Even Fernando Alonso, who benefited from the red flag, uh, he suggested that, uh, that, that he was very, very surprised by it and by some of the other red flags that we saw as well. Um, it brings back memories to, uh, for me of Monaco 2011 when we had that we were robbed of that grandstand finish when we had but Jensen Button chasing Fernando Alonso chasing Sebastian Vettel all of them on newer tyres than the other and then we had that red flag with six laps to go then they all bolted on new tyres for the restart and we were robbed of what was shaping up to be a fantastic finish and I feel that uh, well maybe it wouldn't have stopped Max Verstappen winning the race but it certainly ruined the flow of the race and it ruined the show a little bit in the early stages. 
Absolutely. And I think the, you know, to me, the bigger issue is not so much really whether or not they can change tyres, but it's also a question of had there been damage, uh, the teams can repair the cars and whatever. So effectively, the guys get a free repair window. And, you know, the worst thing that can happen is that somebody causes an accident, he damages his car in the process, the red flag comes out, he's able to continue, the guys that he's had the accident with can't and he can rebuild his car and we had this in 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 Imola a couple of years ago where you know Lewis Hamilton was basically able to do all sorts of work under the red flag and above all you know when when I saw uh, George coming to the pit lane to to uh, change tires under what was then the safety car I actually said to myself teams are data obsessed they should know this will be upgraded to a red flag not because it made sense but that's the way it's happening at the moment that fundamentally um, you know, almost all, and I stress almost every incident where there's a bit of gravel on the track or whatever it becomes a red flag. So, do you think, Dieter, that work should be done uh, under red flag? Consider what you just said earlier. I'm assuming no, but uh, I don't want to put words into your mouth. No, no, no. Um, uh, uh, let me stress I've got no problem with doing work under a red flag, but it shouldn't be a free pit stop. In other words, if you do need to change tyres, if you do need to change your front wing or whatever the case is, by all means do it during that that period. However, then you go to the back of the grid. And fundamentally, the, the easiest way of doing that is that if you're third at the time and somebody is seventh and somebody else is twelfth, if those three cars all do work under the red flag, then they go back in that sequence. So the car that's third joins the back of the grid first, the etc. And so on and so forth. And that way you don't have a free stop. I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't like to suggest that this is the, the way that teams think. But ultimately, you could have a situation where somebody could cause an accident or an incident um, and then go and put under the red flag and rebuild his car and go on and win. We, we've spoken about the first red flag, Michael. What about the other red flags we had during the, the latter stages of the, the, uh, the Australian Grand Prix? Well, the second one was the one on lap 54. Max Verstappen was leading pretty convincingly. And then we had that incident with uh, Kevin Magnussen hitting the wall. The red flag came out. Verstappen said afterwards that he thought the safety car would have sufficed. And of course, he would say that because, I mean, he's leading the race and he's, he's the one that's got the, the most to lose. But Lewis Hamilton uh, seemed to agree with him as well. Um, and then obviously once we had another red flag, then we had another standing start. And then that precipitated the, uh, the, the, the melee that we saw, uh, late in the race with on, on, uh, on lap 56, where we had Carlos Sainz clipping Fernando Alonso. We had, uh, Pierre Gasly running wide and taking out Esteban Ocon. We had uh, Logan Sargent rear-ending uh, Nick De Vries, putting them both out of the race. Uh, Stroll ended up in the gravel. And it, yeah, it was it was absolutely crazy. And then, of course, we had the, another red flag and nobody really seemed to know afterwards in what order we would, uh, w- what the proper classification was. So, Dieter, you mentioned that the race director on your previous answer there, we had a former race director in the paddock in the Australian Grand Prix over the weekend. Michael Massey, yes, absolutely. And and I was a bit surprised that people were surprised that he was there. I would, in fact, have been surprised had he not been there. I mean, you know, the the, the guy... um, in some books, made a mistake in Abu Dhabi. Um, if one 
interprets the regulations in a different way. Maybe there was nothing wrong with what he'd done because uh, the uh, the sporting clause regarding safety car actually says that the safety car operation shall be under the control of the race director or words to that effect. So uh, from that perspective, he did execute that regulation the way that he saw fit and was entitled to see fit. Um, he was not fired by the FIA. In fact, he was offered an opportunity of staying on with the FIA. He turned it down. In the aftermath of the Abu Dhabi Dhabi Grand Prix in in 2021, he was not fired. Um, He was actually retained by the FIA. He was offered another position within the FIA, which frankly would have been roughly the same in terms of status to what he had as race director. He elected not to take it up. He elected to go back to, to Australia. He's chairman of the Supercar V8 Association, which was one of the support races. Therefore, from that perspective, he had every right to be there. And then, of of course, he's also chairman of, of Karting Australia. And, you know, that's that's one of the divisions of um, CAMS, the Confederation of Australian Motorsport. And therefore, overall, the guy had every right to be there. And that's why I was, I was baffled that Ted Kravitz kept on banging on about this. I mean, 2021 has happened. It's over. It's finished. Let's get it out of our system and let's move on. And let's not try and throw sort of all sorts of, of peculiar uh, poison about the paddock. Yeah, well, with Michael Massey being in and around an F1 paddock for the first time since Abu Dhabi 21, uh, I wonder what he would have made of all of this. And maybe he was looking on with a, a wry smile because we had uh, yeah, a, a lot of, uh, well, several inconsistencies uh, and that, that definitely changed the, the course of the race. Yeah, absolutely, Michael. And, you know, I I think um, if we look at the race, although, as we discussed earlier on, um, George Russell did eventually retire due to an an engine failure or whatever it was. However, uh, fundamentally, um, I don't think Michael would actually have called that as a red flag. So maybe Mercedes should have been very careful what they they, um, asked for back at the end of 2021. Uh, You know, I think Michael did do try and do his best. And um, it's, it's just as far as I'm concerned, everything should be consigned to the past and that's it. Yeah, that's definitely where we should where we should leave it. We mentioned the Mercedes there. Michael, the reliability of the W14 has been iconic, but this weekend we seem to have some problems with uh, Russell's car. I was looking through the archives and I believe with George Russell retiring with that uh, power unit issue on lap 17, I believe that's the first engine failure in a Grand Prix for a Mercedes, a Mercedes factory team, uh, that, that is, since Valtteri Bottas in Spain 2017. Ever since the start of the turbo hybrid era, Mercedes have, have famously had this almost bulletproof reliability, especially with the power unit. So that's uh, one power unit failure in six years in a Grand Prix. So that's, uh, yeah, very, very unfortunate for George Russell, but uh, take nothing away from the, the, the general incredible reliability that Mercedes have had over the years. Uh, yes, Michael, of course, that, that's an incredible statistic. But I think on the flip side, let's let's just have a look at it from a performance perspective. What we did have over the years was Mercedes taking a lot of penalty replacements. Therefore, they were precautionary. And therefore, the, the, the whatever power unit bits didn't actually blow during a race. And they could, of course, afford to do that at the time because they had this, this massive performance advantage. They could take a 10 grid space penalty and still go and win the race or come second or come third or whatever the case was. So I think it was kind of tempered against that sort of background. But yeah, I mean, the the hybrid power units generally, except if yours happens to have a, a prancing horse on it at the moment, seem to be almost bulletproof. 
another car that is bulletproof is the RB19 Dieter, that the pace of that car is absolutely incredible at the moment. Absolutely. And, you know, um, Belve, if we if we think about the sort of numbers that we see on screen and then we consider the numbers that we're sort of hearing whispered in the paddock, uh, we're hearing that where on screen they look to be about 0.1, 0.2 a second ahead of the opposition. I believe they've got at least 0.5, if not even 0.7 of a second in hand with that car. And Obviously, we don't see it on a weekend like Australia, where, you know, once Max was in clear air, he wasn't being uh, pushed by his teammate. Therefore, he didn't really have to have to really push it. You know, why win by two minutes if you can win comfortably by 20 seconds? In the process of trying to win by two minutes, you can either throw it away, you could you could blow the engine, the gearbox or whatever. So, you know, Jackie Stewart once said that the best victories are the ones where you go slowly enough to win. And this is what the luxury that Red Bull have at the moment, particularly if, if Max is out on his own, not being challenged by, by Checo. If Checo's right behind him or vice versa, then obviously they keep pushing each other. And again, we saw that in, in Saudi a fortnight ago where they were pushing each other and therefore they were well clear ahead of the field. Yesterday, Max didn't have to do that. Yeah, Alan Jones always used to say he would try and win in the slowest possible speed as well. But uh, talking about the the pace that the the, the Red Bull had, we saw when uh, when Verstappen took the lead from Hamilton. Obviously, he had the DRS and he had that open during that uh, that new DRS zone between sort of turn six and turn eleven. The the nearly flat out left hander and the right hander and the speed with which he just went past. It's like we saw in Jeddah last week. It was a it was amazing to see. What I thought was actually uh, the was actually even more interesting was watching Sergio. Perez, obviously he was coming through the field from the back. We would have expected him to come through. It was when he overtook Oscar Piastri for about uh, eighth place. And Piastri himself had DRS. And the speed differential was amazing. It was as if Piastri's DRS was shut. Uh, It's amazing what Red Bull have done with with the RB19 and the DRS. And it just looks like the complete package at the moment. It does look like the complete package there, Michael. I want to stay on you. You mentioned Piastri. McLaren seemed to, quote unquote, improved uh, over the weekend. Well, they got their first points on the board. Um, Lando Norris finishing sixth and Oscar Piastri in eighth. I think that flattered them a little bit, really, because there was a bit of attrition. Obviously, we saw Leclerc retiring. We saw George Russell retiring. Carlos Sainz got that penalty, which dropped him out of the reckoning. The two Alpines collided with each other. I don't think you can really say that uh, McLaren are the sixth and eighth fastest cars uh, in a grid of 20 in Formula One at the moment. But uh, they've been quite bullish about updates. We heard Andrea Stella this weekend talking about McLaren having three main upgrades planned over the course of this year. The first one to come in Baku, obviously we've now got a three-week break, so the teams are going to be flat out back at the factories trying to get uh, their inventory of parts and trying to get all their upgrades ready for Baku. So, uh, yeah, obviously a very, very good, well, a, a much better weekend for McLaren. It couldn't really have gone much worse than it had in the first couple of races, but uh, I think there's still plenty to do for them at Woking. The only way is up at the uh, MTC Dita. We do have some new teams uh, joining the Formula One circus. Well, we don't know yet whether they're joining, but we certainly know that they're very, very hopeful of joining. Uh, We've had... um, I believe four expressions of interest, as they call it. In other words, four 
entities have uh, indicated to the FIA that they would like to join Formula One, either in 25 or 26, depending on how quickly they can get themselves ready. Uh, We have discussed in the past the Andretti application with Cadillac. We have alluded to Panthera. Uh, Last week, we uh, revealed the Formula Equal program with uh, Craig Pollock. Rather humorous that um, we revealed it and it was sort of swept under the carpet by all the other outlets until Craig went and spoke to CNN about it, incidentally because somebody from CNN had seen the story on on Racing News 365. And uh, suddenly there was this big flurry as everybody knew about it, which I found rather humorous because Craig had really kept that thing well under wraps until we revealed it. And then, of course, um, late last week, we revealed the the high-tech project, which in my book is potentially the most advanced of the the four. Uh, They've been working on it for, for two years now. They've got a very, very strong team of aerodynamicists, vehicle designers, uh, all sorts of people involved. And it will be fascinating to see what um, what comes out eventually when the FIA takes a decision. I believe that there'll be two grid spots uh, available to new teams. There are four applicants. So let's see uh, which of the four actually make it. As Michael said earlier, no races for the next few weeks as the Chinese Grand Prix was cancelled. So we're back in Baku with the next race on the 30th of April. We'll be back next week with all the latest updates from the world of Formula One. We'll see you then.